Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 is our text for today. This is the third sermon in a series through the New Testament book of Romans. Today's message is 43 handwritten pages. The title of the sermon today is God's Son is of First Importance. God's Son is of First Importance. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And as you do, and as you listen to the message today, please try as hard as you can to keep in mind throughout that God loves you. Listen, please, as I read Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have eyes, physically eyes, to see the ability to read. We thank you for our teachers who taught us how to read. We thank you that we have a record of what you have said, and it is written, it is written in your word. And so, Lord, in Jesus' name, we want to thank you for these words which we read, which are truth and our life. And now, Lord, as we try to understand them, we are very much in need not of teachers, but we are in need of your Holy Spirit to be the teacher, to cause us to understand what is being said here by the Apostle Paul under divine inspiration, and Lord, that having understood it, we would have our hearts enlarged to love Christ more and to remember, dear God, that you love us. Help us, Lord, please, not only to keep the gospel of first importance today, but the person of the gospel that is your beloved Son. May he be the center of the bullseye in our thinking and in our lives. This we pray in his name, in the name of Jesus, our friend and our King. Amen. So our outline today is a simple outline. Point number one is confused, and point number two is confident. But let's do a review. Uh, by way of review, the book of Romans is the longest letter in the New Testament. It was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome in about the year A.D. 57. Paul had never been there. He didn't know these people personally. At least he didn't know most of them uh, uh, personally. Uh, his purpose in writing is to clear up and to correct some conflicts in the church at Rome between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. But before he gets to his objective, what he needs to do is to establish his own credibility. And he does this by giving a detailed explanation of the gospel. And when I say detailed, I mean detailed. I'm talking about eight full chapters of credibility building. And even in his introduction here, or in his customary greeting, he identifies himself as one who is set apart for the gospel of God. And then, as we looked at last week, he makes a brief but necessary aside and tells them that this gospel is not something new, but that it was promised in the Old Testament. Now today, we come to verses 3 and 4, and he explains what that gospel is. It is the gospel concerning his son, which brings us to point number one, confused. I am confused. I have a great degree of certainty today that I do not fully understand these two verses. Now, that's not completely true. Verse three is very straightforward. 
pretty easy to comprehend. It is verse 4 that is really baffling to me, and the only sense in which verse 3 is difficult is how it relates to verse 4. There are several words and phrases and concepts in verse 4 which confuse me, and more importantly, there are words and phrases and concepts in verse 4 which confuse and pose a challenge to the smart guys. And when I say the smart guys, I mean those who write Bible commentaries, the writers. Now, usually I use several commentaries when I'm preparing a sermon. This week, I used about 15. I think there were more than 15, but for the sake of argument, let's say I consulted about 15 commentaries to try to figure out what was the basic meaning of verse 4. And in those 15 commentaries, I walked away with 16 different opinions. Um, not that you care, but I'd like to say a word about sermon preparation. Here's my job. It is my job to stand in front of you to read a passage of Scripture and then to the best of my ability to try to explain it to you. Well, I can't explain it to you if I myself don't know what it means. So I read it, and I meditate on it, and I think about it. Then I go for some consulting help. I go to a Bible commentary. What is a commentary? A commentary is a book that a smart guy writes where he or she explains what the passage means to the best of their understanding, and they are more educated than me. So I will think about it first, but then I will go see what the commentary says, and then immediately, as I am reading the commentary, I will see, aha, I got some things wrong. And I will also see, hmm, here's some things that I left out. Then what I will do is I will read a second commentary, and here's what the second commentary will do. They will give even more clarification to my understanding of the text, so forth and so on, third, fourth commentary, so forth and so on. And with each commentary, here's what generally happens. I learn something new, and it sharpens my focus on the actual meaning of the passage. And usually, generally speaking, the commentators more or less agree with one another. So it becomes this beautiful echo chamber where I am hearing the same thing in a multifaceted way time and time again, which just solidifies my confidence in the meaning of the passage. When we get to Romans chapter 1, verse 4, no two commentators actually come out and agree with one another as to what the basic overall interpretation of the verse is. Now, here's one thing that they will all agree upon. They will all agree before they begin to comment, this is a tough verse, and there are many challenges here, and here are the challenges. They admit that it's tough. They give it their best shot, but they come out in different places. So I don't feel so bad about not being able to understand it fully. I don't feel that bad about being a little bit confused. Uh, let me walk you through a small portion of the confusing nature of verse 4 Um and as I do, maybe at the end of this, we will be a little bit less confused. Again, let me read verses 3 and 4. Concerning his son, that is the gospel of God concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. That's the easy part. Here's the hard part. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the, that's the hard part. Before we get into any of the items which are confusing, there's one thing I think that will be helpful for you to know, which will clarify this even ever so slightly, and that is verses 3 and 4 are not the original writings of Paul. He did not come up with this on his own. What he is doing in verses 3 and 4 is he is quoting 
a well-known hymn or a creed or something which would have been very familiar to the church at that time. Uh, you know that just as we gather and we sing hymns and we recite creeds, so too in the early church they would get together and they would sing hymns. This is a hymn or a creed. Now, why do we say that it's a hymn or a creed? Well, first of all, because of the structure. There is a parallelism between verse 3 and verse 4, which has a creedal cadence or formula style. There's another reason why I believe that it is probably, it is probably a hymn and not something that Paul came up with on his own. And that is that in this description of the gospel, there's something that Paul does not mention. And that is the death of Christ. Paul, writing on his own, would never have omitted the death of Christ in his preaching or in his writing. Paul uses creeds all the time in his writing. Um, I, I don't have time to give you all, all of the examples, but I'll just give you one that is, is, is very blatant, and that is over in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Paul is writing to Timothy. He stops, he interrupts himself, and he inserts a hymn that would have been sung by the early church, and that is in verses 11 through 13. The saying, or the hymn, or the creed is trustworthy for, and you can see it's even set differently in the typing of the, or the, the presentation of it in the New Testament here. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. That was a common hymn, and he used that in order to connect with the people. Well, that's what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. And also in verse 4, there are words and phrases which appear nowhere else in any of Paul's writing or in any of his preaching. So, for example, in the ESV, we read that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. That is the only time that Paul ever uses that phrase. He never uses that phrase anywhere else. Also, the phrase, spirit of holiness, not only does Paul not use that phrase, but that phrase is used nowhere else in the New Testament. So he mentions Jesus as the son of David in verse 3, but that's not common to Paul's writing. The only other time that he ever mentions Jesus as the son of David is in 2 Timothy 2.8, where he says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. And, and, and Paul's sentence structure you, you read Paul, he's a very logical person, and his sentence structure is usually very straightforward. It is logical, it is clear, it is at least easy to follow his train of thought, even if you don't understand every doctrine. His structure is easy to follow. Well, here, it, it is a very different sentence structure that Paul is using. He is quoting a well-known creed or hymn. Uh, even though everything that he writes is true, it is not the original style of Paul, or as one commentator put it, when you are dealing with songs or poems or creeds or hymns, they usually deal more with the heart and with emotion, and they pay less attention to logical thought, and I think that is the case here. Now, that is not to say that Paul didn't agree with what he himself wrote, he agreed with the content, or else he would not have written it. It's just to say, this isn't his style. He is quoting someone else. So why then do it? Well, please keep in mind what I've said every week, and that is that he is trying to establish credibility. 
And one way that a person can establish credibility with their audience is to find common ground. And then once you have found common ground, that is something that both parties understand, something that they can both agree on, then there is a, there's a unity there between the speaker and the audience. Give an example of this. About 23 years ago, I went, and I was only there one time, I went to Liverpool in England. Um, from time to time, I will run into people with British accents. I will ask them where they're from, and every once in a while, they'll say that they are from Liverpool. Now, if I want to make a connection with the person, if I, if I, if I want to, to let them know that I understand them and what they're all about, of course, I could mention the Beatles, but everybody mentions the Beatles. Here's one thing I learned in the short time that I was in Liverpool, and that is that those people love their soccer. Uh, we call it soccer. They call it football. For me personally, I watched one soccer game back in 2010. It was like watching paint dry. Okay, so I myself am not a soccer person, but I know that they are soccer people. They are football people. And I know that their team, Liverpool, uh, has, has, a, has a theme song. And I know that their motto is, you'll never walk alone. And so when they say that they are from Liverpool, that they are a Liverpudlian, that they are a Scousa, I'll say, ah, and you never walk alone. And their face lights up like, this guy gets me. He understands me. Well, um, I really don't. Uh, <laughs> but I try to. the audition. But, you know, and I, I don't do that for them. I, I, I go to the football side, not to the John Lennon imitation. That wasn't in my notes. It just came, and I, I think it worked nicely. <laughs> See, someone jot that down. Sound like John Lennon. Okay. But you get the point. He's using this creed here to, to, to connect with the people. Um, point number one, uh, this is confusing. It is confusing. Uh, and there are nine confusing items in verse number nine. Let me go through them. And uh, I'm going to fly through them quickly, but just to show you some of the challenges that I went through in interpreting the text. First of all, in verse four, you notice that the ESV says that he is declared to be the son of God. But most of the smart guys who write commentaries say that it shouldn't be interpreted or translated as declared, but instead it should read appointed the son of God because the Greek word there is never translated declared. It's always translated appointed. The second thing which was confusing to me is that if he is pointed to be the Son of God, does that mean that there was a time when he was not the Son of God? And number three, does the phrase in power refer to the declaration uh, or the appointment that it was in power, or does it refer to the Son of God himself? Is he a powerful son? Uh, was it a powerful appointment, or is he the powerful Son of God? Both of those things are true, but which one is verse 4 saying? Number four, what is the meaning of spirit of holiness? Is it referring to the Holy Spirit with a capital S? Or is it a small s referring to the spirit of Jesus, which is essentially holy? The fifth confusing item, at least for me, closely related is this. Once you determine what the spirit of holiness means, how then does it relate or function in the verse with reference to the word according? What does the word according mean? In other words, how does the spirit of holiness impact 
the Son of God. And closely related, number six, this confusing question arises, and that is, how does the word according, as it appears in verse 3 and in verse 4, form a parallel structure, and what is that parallelism? Confusing item number seven, what does the word flesh in verse 3 mean, and how does that run parallel to the word spirit in verse 4? Paul will often speak of flesh and spirit, How is the parallelism set up here, and what does it mean? Question number eight, which is confusing, and that is with reference to the resurrection. Does it mean that the resurrection was the reason why he was appointed to be the Son of God, or... It can it, and it, it is a, it is a, a legitimate translation. Can it mean that he is appointed to be the Son of God from the time of the resurrection? And then the final confusing item for me that I'm going to share with you today is that in Greek, you, 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 you don't see this in English. You, you, you see it in Greek. Is not that there is a singular resurrection of Jesus. Uh, it, 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 it's not confined to Easter Sunday. It literally means by the resurrection of dead persons, plural. What does that mean? Uh, as Providence would have it, yesterday we had a problem with our sink, and so the plumber, Costa Elenis, came by, checks the sink, and 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 I'm there and I'm studying this and I said, you know Greek, right? He goes, yeah. And he pulls out his phone and he has the Greek New Testament there. And I said, tell me, am I crazy? Does it say plural the resurrection of Greek per, of of Greek persons? Unbelievable. <laughs> Does it say the resurrection of persons plural or just the resurrection? He says, no, it's plural. It is it is plural. So so the the the. Plumber turned theologian has, has reinforced here that it is, that it is plural. And all of these things go to confuse me. But here's the thing. Let's just say for the sake of argument that I take a guess at all nine items and I get all of them correct. I'm not going to get them all correct, but let's just say for the sake of argument that I did. You still have another challenge in front of you, and that is seeing how, how all of the pieces fit together. And I don't think that that's going to happen in my small mind. All that to say, here's what we're looking at this morning. There are some pastors, some preachers, who are unwittingly boring. Here's what I mean by that. They stand up in front of the people, they talk, they think that they are interesting, they do not know that they are boring. I, on the other hand, have just used 12 pages of my notes in an attempt, in, in an intentional attempt to bore you. Um, and by looking at your faces, I am very confident that I am being successful. Um, um, no, really, I do appreciate those of you who are interested in what I'm saying uh, right now. Both of you are a great encourage me to write <laughs> encouragement to me. But, but seriously, I embark upon this exercise for one main reason. And that is in order to demonstrate that when you study the Bible, you understand that I am not supposed to study the Bible for you. I am not a priest. We are all believer priests. We are all to be reading the Bible on our own and doing the best that we can to understand it. That's the point of the Reformation, uh, that, 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 that when you study the Bible, 
there's going to be times when the meaning is very clear, and then there are going to be other times when it is very puzzling and very, very confusing. And when you come to a difficult verse, don't skip over it. Don't say, oh, it's not important. Don't pretend to know what it means when, in fact, you do not know what it means, but do your best to figure it out. You might not get it right, but you should at least put an effort into saying, am I doing the best that I can to make sure I know what this means? And, and particularly in dealing with Paul, you know, we're reading Paul. He's a very deep author. Remember that Peter was a friend of Paul. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter, who is on writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes about Paul's letters, and he says, there are some things in them, that is in the letters of Paul, which are hard to understand. So if Peter is saying that Paul is hard to understand, we too can say we are in good company. So as I have demonstrated here in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, this is one of those hard verses to understand. But I'm also uh, confident that 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 the accuracy of my interpretation is not going to be 100% spot on. But 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 let me try at least going through these nine items and and making a guess as to what the correct answer is. And again, I will try to go very fast. Follow along on your note sheet. I believe that the translation declared to be the Son of God is incorrect. I believe that the correct translation should be that he was appointed. He was appointed to be the Son of God. Uh, Secondly, appointed does not mean that there was a time when he was not the Son of God. He has always been the Son of God, as evidenced by the fact in verse 3 that the first thing that Paul says concerning him is that the gospel is concerning his Son. But appointed means not that he wasn't the Son of God and then became the Son of God, but appointed means that he was designated to spend some time on earth in a humble state, uh, and then at his resurrection, his exalted state was returned or restored to him. In other words, at the time of his resurrection, that was the appointed time for the unveiling of his glory or exaltation. Uh, number three, I believe that the word power there refers to the son and not to the appointment. Number four, I believe that the Spirit of holiness is not to be capitalized. I do not think that it is talking about the third person of the Trinity. I think it is referring to the holiness of Christ's spirit. The the reason I say this, first of all, is because the Holy Spirit in Scripture is never referred to as the spirit of holiness, and the Holy Spirit in all the rest of Scripture was not an agent in the resurrection of Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, The spirit that is in him, that is in Jesus, small s, spirit, is holy because he is the son of God. So there is a perfect contrast between what he was in the seed of David and what he is as the son of God, end quote. And by the way, 75% of commentators disagree with me. They say that it's the Holy Spirit, and maybe they're right. Numbers 5 and 6, I will combine these because they are so close concerning the parallelism and the use of the word according or the usages of the word according. And that is that they line up between verse 3 and verse 4 in a parallelism that would have been used in a hymn or a creed such that verse 3 is emphasizing 
the incarnation, the humanity of Christ in him coming in verse 4 is emphasizing his resurrection so as to accentuate his exaltation. Or to simplify it, verse 3 is speaking of Jesus as the Son of Man, and verse 4, it is speaking of him as the Son of God. And the word according in both cases means in line with or in harmony with or proven by or authenticated by, and in this case it was the resurrection. The seventh thing, which I'm going to try to bring clarity to, is that the words flesh and spirit do form parallelism in verses 3 and 4, and that flesh speaks of his state, the state of his incarnation in his humanity, in his humility, and spirit speaks to his state in exaltation as the king of heaven. Uh, Clarification number eight, I believe that the resurrection does not make him the son of God. Rather, from the time of his resurrection, that is where and when his exalted state is resumed or returned to him or even amplified because of his work of redemption, which was completed. And finally, I give clarification to hoping to remove the confusion of point number nine, and that is that it indeed is in the plural. You're not going to see it in English, but it is in Greek. It is in plural. The the resurrection of persons refers to the fact that Jesus is the first or the first fruits of those resurrected, but his resurrection is the reason and has a bearing upon our resurrection, because if we are in Christ and he rose, then we too will rise one day, And the proof of our future resurrection is the fact that he historically indeed did rise first. Or as it says in Acts 26, 23, when Paul is preaching to Agrippa that Christ must suffer or be crucified and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. You cannot say that somebody is the first in something if there are not others that follow. He's the first to rise we then will follow. So those are my nine questions and answers. Um, um, But here's all I've done up to this point. If you want to use the illustration of a jigsaw puzzle, I think I have all of the pieces. not sure I have the right pieces. I think I have the right pieces, but I'm not sure I have the right pieces. I have them laid out on the table. Now what I have to do is I have to put them together to make the entire passage make sense. So here is my translation. Here is my interpretation, and that is that the gospel of God is about God's Son, and he is Jesus Christ our Lord. And he had to become a man, and he did become a man, humanly speaking, and in so doing, he was a direct descendant of King David. He is the Son of Man. Yet he did not remain in that state but uh, with with all of its obscurity and all of the weaknesses and the limitations. But he is now the powerful Holy Son of God who was the first to be resurrected, and as such, he is now appointed as the King of Heaven. He is the Son of God. That is my translation. That's what I've done in my exegesis or trying to draw out or determine the meaning of the passage. Um, Let me just say this. Concerning my uh, interpretation, it is 100%, I have absolute confidence, it is 100% accurate. Everything I said about Jesus Christ is absolutely true. I have full confidence in that. My confidence is shaken somewhat in that 
I'm not sure that I can draw all of that from Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. All that to say, there's a good chance that some of my words don't find their basis in Romans 1, 3, and 4, but that is point number one, confused. Um, hopefully you are less confused now than you previously were, uh, but be that as it may, when I approached the text, I was initially confused. I think I understand it a little bit better now, which brings us to point number two, and that is confident. There are some things in the passage which I am very confident about, and um, things that I've been addressing which I didn't understand. Here's some things that I really do understand. And I want to use the rest of our time to accentuate six truths which are clear and things which I have the utmost confidence about. I'm going to take these six items in reverse order in which they appear in the ESV text. And the first one, this is the one that I am most confident about, and that is, He is Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, Jesus, that is his human name. It was given to him when he was eight days old. It is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament name Joshua, and it means quite simply that God saves. He is Christ. The word Christ means Messiah or anointed one. In December, you'll remember I did a three-part series on the mediatorial offices of Christ, that he is prophet, priest, and king. And then he is our Lord uh, that is a title which speaks to his deity. It is a title which is reserved for God. Jesus is Lord, and therefore Jesus is God. And this, our Lord Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ our Lord, is the fullest descriptor in the Bible of who Jesus is. The second item about which I am very confident, number two, is that he is alive and reigning. He is alive and reigning. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 is not just saying that Jesus is alive, although he is alive, but the emphasis is upon what the resurrection inaugurated. It is only step number one in what theologians call the exaltation. It is not an end in and of itself. So, if you take a look at what the theologians say concerning the ministry of Christ, they break it down into two categories. The first one is known as his humiliation. And in his humiliation, there are four stages. His birth or conception. Next, his suffering. Third, his death. And number four, his burial. That's, I think, what Paul is accentuating in verse 3. And then there's a second category for the ministry of Christ, and that is known as his exaltation, which also has four stages, which I think is what Paul is emphasizing in verse 4. And the four stages of his exaltation are his resurrection, his ascension, his session, that means him being seated at the Father's right hand, and his return. Resurrection, ascension, session, and glorious return. So, he didn't just come back to life, although he did come back to life, and he didn't just promise to raise us, although he did promise that he was going to raise up us, and he didn't just return to heaven, although he did return to heaven in the ascension, but here's the key. He was also seated at the right hand of the majesty on high in order to rule as the mediatorial king of heaven, seated there until his return. And Paul's gospel extends far beyond Easter Sunday morning. It includes that he is alive forevermore, but it also includes the fact that he is reigning forevermore. 
And so don't think of the resurrection as an end in and of itself in order to prove that Jesus was God. He indeed proved that he was God through the resurrection of the dead, but the resurrection is not the last in a step. It is the first in a step. It is the first in his exalted state. If I can illustrate it this way, let's say that you go and campaign for a candidate and that candidate is elected. And it is on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. You have contributed money to this campaign. You have passed out flyers for this campaign. And you are at the celebration. And you all gather in the uh, conference room of a hotel. And the returns come in. And you discover that night that your candidate has won. There is great cause for rejoicing that night. But what is the value of that man or that woman being elected if when they go to Washington as your representative and they do nothing, or if they do something wrong or bad or illegal? Is there still cause for rejoicing? No, there is not. We rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just like a candidate being elected. But guess what? That candidate went off as our representative, not to Washington, D.C., but to heaven, and there in heaven he is acting as our representative, and he is getting good things done for us while he is there. Jesus was raised, and this is proof, or it is a demonstration, that he currently sits as our great high priest. And you say, well, so what? What's the, like, what's the big deal about this? Why, why is it, why is the resurrection just the first step and that he is the son of God with power, currently having power because of the resurrection from the dead? Well, here's, it, it, it's, it's far more than, than, than theological. In fact, I would say to you, it is chiefly, it is chiefly practical because I'll ask you this question. Have you sinned this week? Are you able in your mind, with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, to think of perhaps what that sin was. I'm not asking you to name all of them. I'm just saying, can you come up with a sin that you've committed this week? You know what it is. Do you understand that unless Jesus is seated right now at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, interceding for you as his, as your high priest, that sin which you have committed is not forgiven unless he is functioning even now as your high priest. Yes, he had to die for us. Yes, he had to be raised again for us. But yes, he had to also ascend. And yes, he also had to be seated and serve as our high priest. So right now, this is very practical that he is alive and that he is reigning. It's not just practical. uh, It's not just theological. It is practical, which brings us to the third item which I am very confident about, and that is that he is holy. He has a spirit of holiness. His spirit is that of holiness. It's what the theologians call the impeccability of Christ. What is the impeccability of Christ? Well, it says this, not only did he not sin, but as the Son of God in his divine nature Because of his spirit of holiness, he could not have sinned. He was completely obedient and completely fulfilled the law of God. And we have a record of Jesus's obedience and God's response to the obedience of Christ. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I always do those things which please the father. 
And it was necessary for us, as we're, as we're studying the gospel, to understand that he was tempted in all ways as we are and yet without sin, and his sinlessness is the reason why we are going to heaven. You see, because he is your savior and you accept him, do you understand that everything that he ever did or did not do is on your record? You get his record 100%. We are saved both by the life and the death of Jesus. Here's what the death of Jesus does for you. It doesn't get you into heaven. It washes away your sins It keeps you out of hell. That's what the death of Jesus does. Wrath is removed because he bore our wrath. Here's what gets you into heaven. His life gets us into heaven. It's not enough just to have your sins forgiven. Having your sins forgiven, all that does is get you to zero. In order to enter heaven, you need to possess a perfect righteousness which you cannot earn. You need to possess a perfect holiness which you cannot earn. But Jesus earned it. And he earned it by the way that he lived. And so it is important that we note that he has the spirit of holiness and he lived that holiness out in his earthly life. We are sinners. We love sin. We have dark hearts. We love things that are bad and impure, and we pursue these things, and they play themselves out in our lives. But Jesus was not a lover of sin. He had a spirit of holiness, and that played itself out when he perfectly obeyed the Father and lived a perfect life of righteousness for us. And so how does this relate to his resurrection? Well, when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he quotes Psalm chapter 2, which we read this morning in our antiphonal reading. And Peter, quoting David from Psalm 2, says that the reason why Jesus was raised from the dead was because of his holiness. Acts chapter 2, verse 27, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. You're not going to leave me in that grave. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. Therefore, God raised him from the dead. He has a spirit of holiness. Three more, three more that we are confident about. The next one is that he is the powerful son of God. He is declared or appointed to be the son of God with power. He's not just the son of God, but this is important. He is the powerful son of God. To be the son of God means that you are God. Several examples in the Bible, I'll give you just one. John chapter 5, verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but there was something else that he was doing. He was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the enemies of Jesus knew that when Jesus said, I am the son of God and God is my father, he was making himself equal with God. The Jehovah's Witnesses do not understand this. I hope you understand this, that to be the son of God means that indeed you are God. And so when you see a scriptural writer calling Jesus the son of God, he is saying that Jesus is God. So for example, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, but to the son, S-O-N, to the son, that is Jesus, but to the son, he says, your throne O God, to the Son, O God, your throne is forever and ever. But it's not just that Jesus is the Son of God in 
Romans chapter 1, verse 4, but he is the powerful son of God. He is the powerful son of God. Appointed as the son of God with power, and that power starts at the resurrection. Now that is not to say that Jesus in his in the days of his flesh, in his humiliation, had no power, but it, because he, he did. He had the power to heal, he had the power to live perfectly, he had the power to forgive sins. But it is to say that the appointment to his heavenly throne, start, which starts with the resurrection, and as such, is nothing but pure, unadulterated, almighty power. Whereas when he was here on earth, there was a limitation or a veiling of his power, and he was willingly subjected to limitations and humiliation and weakness. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He came as a helpless babe. Though he was still the son of God, he was weak. He was helpless. He had to be nursed, even as every other child. He had to be fed and cared for. He was not the son of God with power, lying helplessly in the manger. He was the son of God, but not the son of God with power. Jones continues, The resurrection enables us to see him as he really is and for what he is. And so, and he says, when God sent him into the world to work out his grand redemption, he sent him incognito. Every Christmas we get together and we sing in the Christmas carol, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. You know, I sing that, I don't even really think about it. Like, like if I don't think about it, I don't even know what that means. I mean, I will sing it, it is beautiful poetry, but what does it mean, veiled in flesh the Godhead see? It, it means this. It, it, it means that, 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 that there was a, a veil. What was the veil? The veil was his flesh. Is he the son of God when he comes as a baby in the manger? Absolutely. But we don't see it. The reason we don't see it is because it is hidden. It is veiled. What is it hidden or veiled by? His flesh. Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to illustrate it in this way. He says, when the king of England goes on, on vacation, or as they say over there, when he goes on holiday... Uh, he travels not as the king of England, but he travels as Mr. Smith, and people don't recognize him. He is still the king. He has not changed his being, but he is traveling incognito. He's traveling in a disguise. When Jesus comes as the baby in Bethlehem, most people don't see it. You really needed the eyes of faith in order to see who he was. Anna saw it. Simeon saw it. The, 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 the shepherds were allowed to see it, but most people, they had no idea who he was. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty in him that we should desire him. You line Jesus up in a, in a lineup, you wouldn't be able to pick him out. You, you, you don't know which one is him. He was traveling incognito, but then at the resurrection, you know what he does? He takes the disguise off. And that's why when he meets with his disciples to give the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28, he says, after the resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. What is it that causes him to say that he had that authority? It is the resurrection. Or even as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 4, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. Or 
even more clearly, that familiar passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That is him incognito. That is him hiding and veiling his glory. But what has happened as a result of this? Therefore, through that beautiful resurrection, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. In other words, he is now declared to be the Son of God with power. He is the powerful Son of God. Two more points. Thank you for sticking with me. Point number five, he is the promised Son of David. He is the promised Son of David. So here's what God does. He sends a prophet to David. The prophet's name is Nathan. He says, David, I've got some good news for you, and that is that one day one of your descendants is going to be the forever king. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, Nathan says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when we bury you, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." But he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, forever, forever. There is a forever king who is coming, David, and he's going to be one of your descendants. And so based upon this and based upon the writings of the prophets, the Jewish people are looking for their Messiah. They're looking for the Christ. They're looking for the great coming king. As they're looking for him, there is a way that they're going to be able to identify him, and that is that he would be a biological descendant of King David. And so Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, Jesse who is the father of David, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. You know, as I was studying this week, I discovered something that I had never seen before, and that is that the imagery is that of a stump. Here's why that is used. Uh, I've never seen anything grow out of a stump. I've never, certainly never seen any fruit grow out of a stump. When you start with King David and you go down to Solomon, it just dwindles from there and dwindles and dwindles and dwindles. And it dwindles to the point where the people are taken into exile. And then they come back from exile. And the monarchy just gets weaker and more wicked and weaker and more wicked to the point where there is no more monarchy. And then you have 400 years of silence. And by the time you get to Joseph and Mary, although they are biological descendants of King David, there is no glorious tree which is producing fruit. It is a stump. These are just common people. He is a carpenter who is living in Nazareth. She is just a young girl. This is a stump. And out of the stump comes this fruit. But they are knowing, they know that it's going to come from David. Uh, Here's another example. This is from Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up for David a righteous branch, And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. If I were preaching on this, and I'm not preaching on this, but if I were preaching on this Jeremiah passage about David, my sermon title would be David Jeremiah. Whoa, this is just... Hello? All right. Also in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 9. 
but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Not David himself, because David is dead, but a descendant of David. It's also in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, verses 23 and 24. Remember, this point is that he is the Davidic king. He's in the line of David. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Also in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, verse 24, my servant David shall be king. Not David himself, but the one from David's line shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. And so you can see why when they are looking for the Messiah, they are looking for someone who comes from David's line. And that's exactly why when Matthew opens his gospel, and Matthew's objective is to lead Jewish people to Christ, he opens it up right out of the gates, chapter 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then what Matthew does is he submits a family tree, which gives proof that Jesus is the son of Abraham, that he is Jewish, and that he is the son of David in David's royal line. And that is why in Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph, when they received the decree or the edict from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed or registered, they have to go to Bethlehem, to the city of David. Why? Because that's where Joseph and Mary found their roots. And, 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 and the Jews kept meticulous genealogical records concerning their ancestry. Their records, though, were destroyed in A.D. 70, which brings me to a very practical point, and that is this. If you are witnessing to someone who is Jewish and you are trying to convince them that Jesus is their Messiah, you need to know that they do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but that they believe the Messiah is still yet to come. Here's the question that you need to have for them. If you believe that the Messiah is yet to come, will you agree with me that that Messiah must come from the line of David? Yes. If that is true, are you able to produce genealogical records which will give proof to the fact that the person that you claim to be the Messiah has come from the tribe of Judah, from the direct line of David? They can't produce it because it doesn't exist, and they can't produce it because the son of David has already come. Now, ironically, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders, they had physical eyes, but they could not see. But there was a blind man by the name of Bartimaeus. And what does Bartimaeus say when he is crying out to Jesus for help? Mark 10, 47. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The blind man was able to see that he was the son of David. So the scripture was fulfilled that Jesus was the son of David according to the flesh. Now, please understand this concerning the deity of Christ and him being born according to the flesh. Um, uh, when the phrase according to the flesh is used, that in and of itself is proof that Jesus is God because you would never use the phrase according to the flesh to refer to any one of us because everything that we do is according to the flesh because we have no other state or being or nature. You can't say, well, I take naps and I eat according to the flesh, but then 
in my superhero life, I leave you know, tall buildings in a single bound. No, I mean, everything that we do is according to the flesh. But he mentions that what Jesus did was born according to the flesh, implying that there was another state of Jesus, and there was another state of Jesus, and that certainly was his exalted state. But back to the point, Jesus proves that he is qualified to be the Davidic king forever by being a direct descendant of David But this does not mean that Joseph was his father. Joseph was not his biological father. God was his father. I think James Montgomery Boyce puts it best when he says, and I quote, Jesus was not the descendant from Joseph, otherwise he would have inherited the curse on that line. But when Joseph took Mary under his protection and thus became the adoptive father of her divine child, He, Joseph, passed the right of royalty on to him. And since Jesus was also a descendant from Mary, who, as it turns out, was also a descendant of David through the line of Nathan, Nathan the son of David, Jesus combined the claims of the two lines in his unique personhood. I hope you get that, that Jesus is in the line of David and God is faithful to send his Messiah through that line. And the Old Testament scriptures, which we accentuated last week from verse 2, prove themselves to be reliable in verse 3. Which brings me to point number 6 concerning my confidence. And this is the most important point that I'm going to give you today. In fact, this is the most important point that I have ever made uh, in a sermon. And I will never make a point which is more important than the point that I am about to make right now. This is the top of the mountain. This is the center of the bullseye. And that is, God's gospel is concerning God's son. The gospel of God is concerning God's son. Think about what is going to happen here in the book of Romans. He's going to go through eight chapters of gospel content. So it's really important how he leads, how he takes off. And the first thing that the apostle Paul has to say about the gospel of God is that it is concerning God's son. This is so different than our understanding and what we accentuate concerning the gospel in our modern-day approach to the gospel, and I'm not talking about people who have an aberrant gospel. I'm talking about those of us who say that the gospel is of first importance, those who believe that the gospel is of first importance. Our approach and that which we initially accentuate is very different than what Paul draws our attention to here. Our thinking about the gospel is primarily this. What's in it for me? It is the benefits that we receive. Now, there is nothing wrong with gaining benefits from the gospel. The gospel, by definition, brings us great benefits. But notice what is not in this verse. He's talking about the gospel of God, and what he comes out with first is that it is concerning his son. The primary focus up front about the gospel, according to Paul, is not how we get to heaven or how we avoid going to hell, nor is it about how we gain contentment and meaning in this life. 
Not, and it's not about how we enter into a loving community called the church. And it's not about how I get rid of my sins and I get rid of my guilt. And it is certainly not about how I live a moral life. Now, all of those things are important. It's important that you ultimately end up in heaven and that you don't go to hell and that you become a part of a loving community and that you do live a moral life. Those things are important. The gospel speaks to those things, but that is not primarily at the, at the outset, up front, what the gospel is about. The gospel is concerning his son. The gospel does not have us and our needs as its primary focus and its primary emphasis. What's in it for us is not the headline of the gospel. And notice also that the gospel is not primarily about doctrine or about theology. It's not about Calvinism or the extent of the atonement. It's not about the Reformation and the Reformers. It's not even about the Bible. It's not even about the church, although it is in the Bible that we learn about the gospel, and it is in the church that we live out the gospel. But the gospel itself is not primarily about the, go- about the Bible, nor is it about the church. The gospel is not about any benefit or blessing or experience for us at all. The gospel is not about us. The gospel is primarily at the outset, first and foremost, about a person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. Illustration. So there's this battle, and it takes place every December. Here we are as pastors and we are we are ready to do war with christmas now here's christmas christmas has what it has the money it has the advertising it has the glitter it's got a guy in a red suit it's got it's got all of this and it's got tradition and everything and here we are as pastors saying no no it's about jesus let's do war jesus is the reason for the season So here we are in something which is fundamentally and primarily about Jesus, and we're having to fight to even bring Jesus into the conversation. But then let's just say for the sake of argument, we win that battle, which we never do. But let's say that we win that battle and we get it into the church. What does it become about then? Well, it is about the parties and it is about tradition and it is about eating and it is about this, that, and the other. Where where we, even with people who say that Jesus is the reason for the season have trouble bringing Jesus into the Christian Christmas. And then once we bring him in, we bring him in with all of this nonsense, which isn't even in the Bible, but only appears in plastic lawn sets of the nativity and the things which are in the Bible about Jesus. We never do accentuated Christmas. We can't even get Jesus into Christmas. The month of the year, which is hardest for any minister to minister about Jesus is the month in which Jesus is supposedly talked about the most. But I'm not talking about December because it's not December. It's February. I'm talking about the the other 11 months of the year where we, as Christian people, are going about our Christian lives not fighting the commercialism of Christmas, but just trying to live Christian lives. And guess what happens to us? It is a struggle from a day-to-day basis, not only in the church, but within our own minds, to actually make Jesus Christ himself, period, the concentration of what we are doing. It is always something else. And the other things are not necessarily bad. But we're missing the point. 
The point of what we are doing here and what we should be looking at is the gospel of God concerning his son, concerning his son. So when we say that the gospel is of first importance, we even need to refine that further and distill it down to this, and that is that the son of God is of first importance. I will grant you, this is complicated language, but what I'm giving you right now is a really simple truth. And that is, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. Jesus needs to be the point. We need to make much of him. He needs to be the theme of our songs. He needs to be our concentration. He needs to be the king of our hearts. You need Jesus. John Calvin puts it this way. He who has made due proficiency in the knowledge of Christ, that's just a fancy way of saying that somebody who really knows Jesus has acquired everything which can be learned from the gospel. And on the other hand, they who seek to be wise without Christ, are not only foolish, but they are completely insane. End quote, and I think that sums it up. We have a tendency to see everything except that which is essential, and that is Jesus himself. And again, I'm talking about gospel preachers like myself and those of you who try to live the cross-centered life. So often do we miss or underemphasize Jesus himself. And so I leave you with three examples. One from the pen of the Apostle Paul, Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul, are, are you proclaiming warnings and wisdom and maturity? No, I'm proclaiming Christ. Him we proclaim. Also from the pen of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. And from the lips of Philip, Acts chapter 8, verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Pretty complicated passage. Pretty simple application. You need Jesus. He needs to be your all in all. All right, four verses down, 429 to go. <laughs> Hopefully with this, you have been able to, through it all, know that God loves you. And I hope you've kept that in mind. Father in heaven, I pray that we would make much of Christ. Lord, we are prone to wander Lord, even in seeking good things, may we not be content with them. May we, Lord, seek the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field, Christ himself. Blessed Holy Spirit, please make Christ very large in our hearts and our lives. In his name we pray, amen.